The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. I have Andrew Kona here with me uh, talking about artificial intelligence. He is the CEO and co-founder of Remish. Time to welcome this week's Data Guru. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. I know that um, I am so intrigued by artificial intelligence, uh, and I know that your company is um, grounded in that in that practice. And so, can you just tell us a little bit about your company and what you do? Yeah, sure. So, well, we started initially thinking about artificial intelligence to solve a problem that a lot of us were interested in, and that problem was how do you understand a country's worth of people. Uh, in real time, in a way that you can make the decisions based on what you learn from them uh, in order to do what is best. And half of that problem we learned is you have to do it in a way that is engaging. So you have to do it in a way where people want to participate. Okay. So market research tends to be focused on, we always pay them, and so we don't think too much about the actual participation right. itself. Uh, we were ignorant, didn't know what market research was, and so we thought, top first, what can we do that is actually engaging? And then we said, how do we turn an engaging experience into data that is usable, that is uh, actionable, I guess, to say, use those words. And the result is that we ended up building a platform that lets a single moderator hold a real-time natural language conversation with hundreds or thousands of people simultaneously. And we analyze all of the language coming in from people in real time. And we identify verbatims that best represent entire groups. We incorporate things like demographic data and behavioral data into the system uh, so that a moderator is able to have what they know how to do best, a natural conversation. Uh, They're able to pivot just as they would during IDIs or during focus groups. Uh, But this whole process is happening at a statistically significant scale. So it means the insights that come out of it are Quantitative, potentially, right? Exactly. Because there are large sums of people that are responding. You got it. So it basically means that any research that you would do with a uh, combination of focus groups and surveys, uh, we can do in a single remesh session uh, through natural conversation. That's amazing. So tell me how you engage consumers. Like, how does it work from a consumer perspective? Yeah. So uh, first we'd say from participant perspective. A participant. Thank uh, you. Consumers are one type of participant. Uh, Employees are another for us. But basically, from the, per- from the perspective of the person participating in these sessions, uh, they are engaging with what they see or what they hear or what they're seeing messages from as one person. That's okay. the moderator. And every time the moderator sends them a message, uh, they're able to respond to it. And so they respond just like it was a one-on-one conversation in natural language. Now, we added one piece after that that happened. So after you click send on your message to the moderator, right. uh, we're now going to analyze all of the responses coming in and generate a pair of two responses of what other people said that we think maybe you might care about uh, and ask you to choose between those. And you're going to make a choice 
and we're going to learn a little bit more about you. So we're going to use that to come up with another pair, okay. and you're going to make a choice. And we're going to do that for maybe 30 seconds or a minute. And so it turns out that uh, by combining those two pieces of data, we get a answer that best represents the group. And so participant sees their entrance, they do these two choices, and then magically a verbatim appears as if they sent it. Uh, and that verbatim is what best represents everybody. And statistically speaking, it's actually one that quite well represents each person. Wow, that's amazing. How did you even start thinking about this as a market research application? Yeah, so like I said, we, we started not knowing anything about market research. Right. We were just focused on understanding large groups. And what, the honest answer is yeah. we realized to kind of continue growing. Uh, initially, we said, okay, how do we build an application that can serve 10 million people simultaneously. We did some math and it turns out you need a lot of money to be able to do it. <laughs> so uh, we then started asking ourselves, where where does this technology that we've built actually create value? Right. And so we ran some experiments on uh, LinkedIn. Right. So we actually, I don't even think it linked to anywhere, but we just came up with what we thought was the value proposition. Okay. Uh, understand large groups of people in real time. Gotcha. I think that's what we said. Uh, and we marketed it at everybody we could and we looked at where conversion rates on this ad to nowhere were high and they were high with qualitative market researchers. And so I didn't actually know what that was, right. but uh, we realized that that pattern was emerging. And so uh, we started talking with them. And uh, in those initial conversations, we learned that what we had built was something that they would say lived at the intersection of qualitative and quantitative. So okay. qualitative because it's natural language and conversational, uh, but quantitative because we're doing it at a scale where the insights are statistically significant. It's fantastic. It's amazing because I, you know, that cycle, and I think we touched on this before we actually got on air. Um, that that cycle of qualitative to quantitative could be as as long as sixteen weeks, and you're saying you can do this now in a matter of about an hour. Hour. Uh, how are clients responding to this? What are they? What's the reaction? Yeah, so we've kind of seen two different reactions. Okay. So one reaction is hesitation, which I guess is natural, sure. right? People do market research because right. they're trying to de-risk a decision they're making. Right. And we've seen the other reaction, which is, say, large degrees of excitement because the very paradigms or the, the loops that decision-making sit in in large organizations, right. uh, if you now allow the decisions that are based on market research to happen on order magnitude hours and days yes. rather than weeks or months, right. uh, now they can retool their entire organization right. or retool their marketing or retool how their product works. Um, and so we see a lot of excitement there. And so you know that propagates down to those who do research who go, ah, well, actually, if we can do something in three days or do something in three weeks and the results are just as potent, why, why would we do the longer version? Right. Yeah. So where does the, uh, I, I noticed that your background uh, is, you're a computational physicist. Yeah. <laughs> what is that exactly? Yeah, so uh, the best way to think about it, I guess, is so physics is kind of the this process of trying to describe the natural universe with the language of math okay. and using an experimental process which says, I think this language of math describes the universe. Right. It makes a prediction. Okay. I do an experiment to see if my prediction's right. If it's right under the right context, then I say I trust this description of the universe. And uh, computational physics is yeah. doing these kinds of experiments on computers. So okay. uh, it best way to say it, I guess, is we take a computer and try to simulate small pieces of the universe inside a computer uh, so that we can run experiments on that small slice of the universe. So the computer is actually processing 
the com- they're computing. Uh, they're computing the the laws of physics or computing right. the physical equations uh, to decide what happens next in our simulations. Now, is that the artificial intelligence piece of this whole formula? Ah, so <laughs> turns out that is um, largely the things that we were doing there was uh, two things. One is parallel and GPU based computing, okay. um, which is kind of supercomputing. Yes. The other is uh, a lot of statistics, Bayesian statistics to okay. be specific, um, and it turns out. The Bayesian statistics, when you're doing them in this form, look an awful lot like what I later learned people were calling machine learning. And so uh, I got really excited when I realized that I already kind of understood this thing that was just beginning to become interesting in the academic world. Um, And so decided to start playing with it and applying it to all kinds of weird problems as a consultant on the side. Uh, And that's kind of where I started understanding the intersection of how I could apply GPU supercomputing to... Uh, these AI problems, um, and then eventually how to use that setup to apply it to language problems or understanding people problems. It sounds like, uh, do you have a large team that you all collaborate and work on this together? Uh, So I'd say it (laughs) feels large to us, although because we're in a constant state of growth right now. Um, Right now we're about 12 people, though. Okay. But we have tons of data. Access to tons of data. Yeah, so we the amount of data that we gather in these one-hour sessions is actually remarkable. And so uh, what originally I thought was the hardest problem is how do you understand the data, how you analyze mm-hmm. the data. Um, but it turns out if you can do it in a long form of time, it's not too hard. But right. when you have to have all this data coming in simultaneously and you're analyzing it at the speed Same that it's time. coming in, right. it actually takes uh, a totally different way of thinking about building software. And uh, I wasn't necessarily a software engineer, but I spent my time in algorithms. So I had to bring in people who were much better at me than me uh, at doing those kinds of things. Interesting. And who do you hook into at the client side? Is it, are you actually working with market research departments? Are you working with different organizations, different kind of groups within the end client? Uh, So I would say it's a bit of a mix. Okay. Um, So some so if we're working with the end client, which isn't all the time, right. uh, we're usually interfacing with their market research department. Um, and we usually interface with them a little bit until they get the hang of our platform. And then, and then they, they kindly uh, let us step back. Say thank you. Yeah. Um, if we're interfacing with uh, market research agencies, right. so kind of those people who sit in the middle there, uh-huh. um, we will basically usually interface with the re- agency itself. Sure. Um, sometimes we'll like talk with the end clients with them if they want to have us there to explain kind of the guts or the technical pieces. Um, But largely we're then interfacing with their moderators um, because that's who we're bringing up to speed and educating on the platform for, for kind of first use. Um, And then we work a lot with big consultancies. And so in that case uh, we interface with them just briefly and they usually get up to speed quickly and then we're they're off. Uh, you mentioned topics that the algorithms tackle, um, challenges in food, material science, biosensing, traffic, image analysis, and language. What is In that, I can basically understand each word, except for biosensing. What exactly ah. does that mean? Yeah, so those are all different things that I've applied, let's say, various algorithms to in the okay. past uh, eight, eight, ten years or so. Sure. Um, so biosensing, uh, this is something working on with liquid crystals. So okay. uh, the stuff that's in your screen that makes right. a pixel turn from red yeah. to blue. Um, 
And it turns out that why pixels change colors is that there's all these little molecules shaped like long rods. And okay. when they all point up, it lets light through. When they all point this way, it doesn't. Gotcha. And uh, it's really sensitive to that switch. And we use electricity to switch it. Well, okay. turns out if you put like a bubble of that on something right. and you coat the top of it with the right kind of molecule, yeah. then when it comes into contact with a target molecule, it forces the same switch oh. and you can monitor it. So it allows you to convert uh, a biosignature, so the existence of a protein or a molecule right. of some sort, to a measurable signature, which is the amount of light that can pass through something. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, so it's biosensing. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like you never, you would never be bored at work. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me, what do you, what do you think of the? Uh, the experience in terms of the participant, enga participant engagement. How do you guys craft that, manage it, make that optimal? Yeah, so I would say kind of the first and foremost thing is we ask our participants a lot. Okay. So um, part of part of building a product is right. uh, you're basically building this machine that's taking input and understanding from those who are using the product to solve their problems right. and, and evolving it, right? So okay. we learned that we need to integrate demographic data because right. our moderator said, hey, I want to understand differences across demographics, right? Um, but we don't just listen to the people who are using it as, from the moderator mm -hmm. side. Uh, we use that same loop for our participants. So uh, at the end of, I would say, 50% of our sessions, yes. um, 100% of the ones we do, and even a lot of ones that our customers, they do, they ask, how was this experience? And uh, generally, it's always positive, which was kind of engineered from the beginning. Uh, if it's ever not, then we learn why not. Okay. And so, for example, uh, early on, we learned that um, the how we were timing things, mm -hmm. uh, the amount of time to type and the amount of time to vote, right. that that was sensitive, that too short and people were frustrated or they only gave one word responses, uh, too long and people were bored. And so we had to dial that in. Uh, okay. We learned that uh, in participating, people really wanted to, in the end, uh, know how their response did. So when other people voted, how did their response do? And so uh, we built in a mechanism that uh, allowed them, at least in some way, to see kind of how theirs did. And uh, kind of by building in these feedback loops, what we did is focused on just basically improving every right. time we make a change, we want our participants to go even more so, right. we like it, we want to participate. And so we kind of just, like, it's no one thing. I right. wish it was a magic it's formula, but it's just like. a continuous focus on uh, putting that almost as a top priority. So right. if we're ever forced to make a decision, which is, do we do something which is going to give us a little bit better data, but right. make the participant experience any more negative, yeah. uh, we won't do it. Okay. So that's kind of the top priority is if people don't enjoy the experience, then, then you've kind of almost corrupted their state of mind in doing it. And right. you're going to get a different experience, response. which leads to different responses, right. which leads to a farther deviation from the truth you're trying to measure. Right. So are you recruiting all these people to be part of your platform? Uh, so we, people come from everywhere, everywhere. to use our platform. Okay. So uh, we, when we do work with traditional researchers, yes. we work with traditional panels okay. um, and we recruit like you would think. We pre-recruit a group of people to show up at a time that right. match a, a particular demographic base. Right. Um, so nothing magical there. Right. Uh, we've started more and more to work with uh, communities. Okay. So for example, we've recently integrated with Vision Critical, which yeah. is a community platform, uh, so that you can pull participants directly from your Vision Critical platform, okay. hold a session on Remesh. We're bringing all the data over from Vision Critical so we can analyze and look at differences across uh, data that was gathered on platform um, and use like you interact with participants that way. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
we have an increasingly amount of people who started using us for employee, let's call it things. Um, so uh, the things we see most is for in, like feedback of managers. So I use it with my team all the time. Okay. I do a 15-minute session with my team just to figure out, is there anything I need to understand that people aren't telling me directly? Okay. Is there anything I need to change that no one really wants to say straight to my face? Um, and how overall is the culture evolving and changing? Um, and so by just approaching it not as a thing I send a survey out on once a month, right. but on a thing that we just have this ongoing, easy way to have conversation one to many, right. uh, it just builds into our cycles. And so we're seeing more and more um, companies and more and more people who actually provide engagement as a service right. uh, using our platform as a means to engage employees in a way where employees actually feel engaged rather than just having engagement on the title of a survey. And are they anonymous in their feedback? when They, they are. They yeah. are. So they yep. really might feel more comfortable expressing exactly how they feel. That's exactly right. Okay. Okay. Yep. That's an interesting application. I think, especially with a lot of people be working remotely and different countries, cultures, that that could really have a strong um, application for companies and leadership. Yeah, absolutely. So it certainly gives a way for uh, so not every person might surprise you. Not every manager at a company uh, thinks like a market researcher. Sure. And so it means that their ability to interpret data presented and formulated in the way that a market researcher would right. uh, doesn't always match. And to get it to match is a lot of, uh, say, heavy lifting. Right. Um, but it turns out nearly every manager is highly capable of understanding a conversation. And so by conducting research, I'm putting in air quotes, sure. yeah. uh, in a way that feels like conversation and flows like conversation, it means that they can understand it like conversation. And so that makes it accessible to people uh, who might not always have uh, that degree of accessibility towards research type data or understanding. Interesting. So what do you think the future holds? Where do you think we're going? I mean, you've, you've kind of got into the research side of things. I wouldn't say accidentally, but it, a byproduct of the vision that you've yeah, set forth. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the future hold? So I would say there's a... I'll give you a short-term and a long-term sure. answer. Yeah. Um, so I think on the short-term, what we're going to see is a shift uh, to two things. So okay. a um, one is the rise of, let's call it, behavioral measurements or passive measurements. Okay. So these are things that the consumer has no idea are happening. I'm learning how you click. I'm learning uh, what you pay attention to on a screen. I'm learning uh, what your when you walk in a store where you're walking, right? right? All these things that we can passively measure. Um, but I think that uh, very quickly we're learning that maybe that's not the whole story. So if I learn that you tend to click this button, uh, that tells me that you tend to click this button, right. but it doesn't exactly tell me why. Right. And so uh, I think that that passive measurement is going to, most quantitative uh, data is going to start coming and moving over to just coming from these passive measurements. Okay. But what's left is the why. And uh I've learned that that is kind of the strength of qualitative research right. is to dive into the why. And so our hypothesis is that uh, you're going to have a, an increase in the amount of qualitative research that's done to get to more deep why insights, flavored insights, right. um, but that people will still want those done in a way that they can trust them, in a way right. that is statistically significant. And so um, I think those are kind of from the researcher's lens. Yes. Those are the two things that are going to be happening. Um, now, from the point of view of the consumer, mm -hmm. uh, I think that there's going to be a shift from thinking about research as research, thinking about research as surveys or research as, uh, I put in air quotes again, yes. exercises, right? Um, and instead thinking about relationship building okay. and thinking about uh, companies and 
consumers uh, building these ongoing relationships. And so I think if you build those ongoing relationships right by building a community of your consumers and right. engaging in them in ways that are engaging and natural and rewarding, uh, then the byproduct of that is you're going to get to that qualitative understanding, the why you're going to, because it's a relationship. Um, but then all of the quantitative stuff that is still necessary to make uh, decision-making will happen passively. Um, so I think that is kind of going to be the, call it short-ish term sure. future. Yeah. Um, on the longish term, uh, a little different. So uh, I think what will happen is going to be, so are you aware of what reinforcement learning is? No, I don't think so. Okay, so um, right now you hear a lot of people say AI, us included, and what we're generally talking about is narrow artificial intelligence. So okay. um, it's take one specific task. So mm -hmm. in our case, uh, we want to take natural language and we want to understand it relative to each other so we can take the statistics on it. Um, that's a singular problem. Right. Uh, I can't take Remesh's AI and now go out and have it drive a car correctly, right? right? right. Uh, so totally we're designing AIs yeah. for narrow tasks. Right. Um, general AI, which is largely associated with reinforcement learning or beginning okay. to be, um, is where you can have a AI that is able to accomplish multiple tasks, okay. uh, learn multiple tasks, and then solve problems at the intersection of those tasks. So to give you an example, yes. um, take the task of, uh, let's take the most simple ad we can. Okay. You know, the Google, yes. if I go to Google, I type in a search. Yes. The ad is literally just like a sentence, right? right. Simplest thing I can generate. Right. Um, so imagine one task is generate a ad mm -hmm. or generate a sentence right. uh, that is likely to get clicked on uh, by the people that are likely to purchase my product. Okay. And I can now take a reinforcement learner okay. and it's going to just start generating random ads until it learns the patterns that start being associated with clicks. Um, and in reinforcement learning, uh, it's learns what a reward is, right. it learns an action space, so what actions it can sure. take, in this case generating an ad, right. uh, and it learns how what to measure. And okay. so what it would be measuring is click-throughs and sign-ups. What it would be action-taking is generating the ad, uh, and what the reward, reward is, is is a click-through to sign-up, right? Um, so and you that's, think that's all going to be automated uh so yes, yes. not yeah. even done yet though not so even, this is okay. where i think oh, it gets sorry, interesting ahead, right so yep. uh largely what i described there is the world of the um the marketer right. and uh, a market researcher might jump in to figure out exactly what those words are right. um but uh generally we might say that's a creative person who's going to come up with a few options and test them and so in this case our reinforcement learners just figuring out how to test. Right. So nothing crazy. Okay. But I think what's going to be interesting is that you'll see, uh, now imagine give it two tasks. Um, it's learned how to generate an ad that's going to generate click-throughs. Right. Uh, but now it learns, we extend its action space to say, now you're allowed to make ad buys against that ad that vary by demographic or vary by uh, profile of a person. And so now what it can learn to do is it can learn which demographics are resonating with which particular ads. Okay. And so now it's wow. able to optimize not just one single ad or one single thing that generally gets a click through. It starts to learn the more complex patterns that allow it to generate the content gotcha. and then target that content uh, in a way that's maximally effective. And so real time, real time. So okay. I think uh, it's going to be this intersection of um, multiple tasks that are generally separated. So right. the creative content people who make the content, the market researchers who evaluate it and position it. Um, and I think you'll start seeing uh, reinforcement learning based general AI uh, be able to combine those in a way that'll get so much efficiency that it might make our brain. It, it already hurts. Um, curious, in that kind of 
scenario, wh- where do you see the role of a human being? Uh, in the person who's clicking the ad. That's it. So, well, so this is... How about a, okay, go ahead, sorry. So uh, the answer, <laughs> so it depends if I put on my... Uh, right. So if in one, if I use just the half of my brain that would right. think only about um, monetization, optimization, sure. um, it costs me basically the amount it costs to host my servers to run this. Right. Uh, and I'm automatically day over day increasing my uh Cat, my cost of acquisition, right. uh, it's just continually plummeting. Uh, I'm learning to better target exactly the people who want my product. Um, and you'd be hard pressed to make an argument why you would want to stop that process or make it cost more money, Fair like enough. adding a human. Yep. Now, uh, if I take off the part that says only do what makes more money, right. because that's definitely not, not I think, how me. the right. best world works, yes. um, and think about from the perspective of that consumer, mm-hmm. um, that there's still a value in the relationship. Okay. And if you believe there's still some value in the relationship that uh, I don't want things just magically appearing, but right. uh, I want to purchase, uh, let's say I want to purchase my, I don't know, what, what's something you've purchased in the past three days? My microphone. All right, your yeah. microphone. <laughs> yes. So uh, when you purchased your microphone, did you use any human input to decide which one to get? I, I went on YouTube and I watched, I actually had one, no, that's not true. Uh, the person that I've been working with, who's a consultant yep. on podcasting, recommended a couple of different brands. And I went and searched all those brands. And then I lo- watched YouTube videos and ultimately decided on which brand I was going to buy. Got it. So it, it wasn't just that you served, click right. the best ad, but that's that there right. was human input. Yes. So I think that this relationship human-based component right. uh, ideally should remain. And part of that is that... Uh, Imagine if this reinforcement thing just learns to do what what I'm going to click on. Um, To use a lewd example that I think we're seeing in the advertising world right now, uh, it's like the age-old adage of sex sells, right? Um, You put a picture of something that is sexually stimulating, it is going to get more click-throughs than something else. Now, is that necessarily what is best for us? Um, Well, to an AI, it's not asking that question. It's saying purely optimize for it. Um, And so I think that the ideal scenario, you still need humans in this loop uh, who are uh, keeping things aligned with like more important goals, with more moral goals, um, and potentially with kind of visions of companies, which maybe a company's vision includes not diverting into right. just the most instantaneously gratifi- gratifying thing, uh, but in something that is like slowly gratifying yeah. and long lasting. And so That's I think that applies to products. So it really comes back to kind of your moral code, your ethics, like what, what do you want your brand to represent in that model? You're going to get the efficiency, but how do you ensure a positive brand experience in that process? Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting stuff. I really am glad. Uh, this is great. Um, I I thank you for stopping by and yeah, talking no with us. I'd love to have you back and hear how progress is going and how you continue to evolve the company. Before I wrap up, I'm going to ask you a fun question. Sure. A little less heavy than AI and artificial. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, my question for you is, what's your favorite non-computer, non-electronic, non-work activity? Ah, so I have two that balance out. So okay. one is drawing pictures. Oh, nice. So I draw pictures every day on the way home on the subway. Do you really? Every, yep. That's uh, kind of like uses the other You're part of my brain. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's my switch off that's to so work cool. mode. Um, and I write and record a lot of music. Good for you. That's fantastic. Oh, so then you know stuff about the microphones. Uh, indeed, and the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's fantastic. This is a fascinating um 
capability in terms of how small the equipment for recording is and how powerful it is at the same time. Yes, I think maybe there's an analogy here to bring in a full circle, which is uh, if you think about the process of uh, recording a, call it, let's call it a radio show, sure. podcast. Yeah. Uh, if we zoom back 20 years ago, this would have had three people running a multiple back, different right. machines, doing it all to make it happen. Sure. Um, and there would have been left this relationship between you and I talking, right. uh, but there was all this human input in the system. Right. Um, but what we're left with today as a result of technological evolution is all of the peripheral stuff that makes that system work, yeah. that's now been put into this tiny little box we have sitting between us. But the relationship and the conversation that happens between us, as I would say, largely stayed the same. Yes. We're still talking face to face and that's where the value is. And so I think that same thing is probably what we're going to see in, in our world of market research. That's a great analogy. Andrew, thanks for stopping by. Um, if people want to learn more about your company, where can they find you or find your company? Yeah, so remesh.ai. Okay. Uh, that's where you can go. Check out our website. Great. Um, if you want to email me directly, I guess I can just... I didn't know if you're on social media or not. Oh, so I am <laughs> on... I do have one of those Twitters. Okay. Um, my username is I am Andrew, but okay. spelled exactly written reverse. Oh, wow. That's so creative. It's like W-E-R-D-N-A-M-A-I, I think. Um, but I admittedly am not a, a highly active yeah, social media No worries person. at all. <laughs> well, that wraps up this episode of Data Gurus. Uh, stay tuned for next week and thank you for listening. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus podcast. This episode has ended. But your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.